Before I'm going to read a passage from Isaiah, I just want to do a little bit of background because sometimes when we have a bit of context, it's a little bit easier. I don't know quite what's happened to the color there, but never mind. It won't matter. Today's reading really centers around a king. And in fact, he's the king that a lot of the book, early part of the book of Isaiah is written around, a guy called Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was the great, 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 great grandson of King David. And he ruled in Jerusalem. But the kingdom of David had been split in two after the death of David's son Solomon. And so Ahaz ruled the southern part, which is called on this map Judah, around Jerusalem. He didn't rule in the northern part of the kingdom. But Ahaz was a disaster. In fact, one of the things as you read through some of the book of Isaiah is you see just how angry God is at the people. And when God is angry at the people, very often it stems from the leadership. In fact, Isaiah began just chapter 1, verse 1, where it said, Hear, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The year was about 740 B.C., and it was very turbulent times politically. Assyria, which it was off to the east of this map, there it is there, was the dominant superpower, and it was literally coming in conquering one little country after another little country. Going back to this map, Israel in the north allied with Damascus, Syria, which was the neighbor, or it's marked here as Aram, doesn't matter, all these names keep getting confused, doesn't matter, its neighbor will do. They formed an alliance against Assyria, and they asked Ahaz to join them, but he said no. And so Israel and Damascus invaded him, and they besieged Jerusalem. So never mind Assyria, this is his neighbors attacking him. And Isaiah said to Ahaz, trust in God. Don't make any alliances, don't do big politics, don't do geo whatever it is, just trust and everything will be okay. He said, ask God for a sign. Ahaz says, I don't want to ask God for a sign. I think he didn't want to ask God for a sign because if he got a sign from God, he'd have to do what he was told and he didn't really want to do that. But Isaiah said, I'll give you a sign anyway. Here's the sign. And you'll know these words. Isaiah said, The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now, the minute you hear that, you're all thinking Christmas, aren't you? Because Matthew uses that in the telling of the Christmas story, and he says, he applies it to Mary and to her son, Jesus, but says that he's coming to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. But here's the little bit of a problem, because when the verse is used in Isaiah originally, it seems to say something a little bit different, because Isaiah goes on to say, before the boy knows enough to choose right from wrong, the two kings that you dread will be dead. 
And so what Isaiah seems to be doing is he's pointing at a, a young woman, perhaps a, a young pregnant woman, is saying before that young girl has a baby and the baby is a toddler, these two kings that are attacking you will both be dead. That's your sign. That's your hope. That's your promise. And so one of the questions that we're left with is, how can Matthew use that text to say something completely different? You got me? Because in Isaiah's day, it's talking about what's going to happen in the next few years, and yet Matthew uses it to point right forward to events 700 years later. But here's the thing. You'll find this very often in biblical prophecy. It works at two levels. At one level, it speaks very directly into the situation, an ancient situation, long since gone, that people needed to hear God's Word. They needed promise to get them through that year, the next year, the year after. But at another level, it begins to roll out God's big plan for all creation. It's like, you know, when you're walking in the hills and you, you, you see the hill and you get closer to the hill and then you realize that the whole vista just opens up behind it. And there's far more. There's far, far more. A word of hope for now, but it points to God's bigger plan. And we're going to have a look at that as we look at the next passage in Isaiah, how that's true for us as well. We need the immediacy of God's Word to get us through where we are now, but we also need to see God's big picture of what He's about. So, let's read God's Word then. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9 and the first seven verses, and I guarantee as I read these verses, you're going to have Christmas carols going around in your head. Let's read. Nevertheless, says Isaiah, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. And they rejoice before you as people rejoice in the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire." For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen.
We can take the story on a little bit further. Ahaz did not trust God. And he decided he would try to make an alliance, but, but not, with, not with these two kings that were attacking them. He tried to make an alliance with Assyria itself, with the big superpower. And so he sent them gold from the temple. And he melted precious objects down. And he, he spoke to spiritists and mediums and occult folk to get some advice. It was absolutely not good at all. And the result of it was militarily pretty bad as well. Assyria came... And the first thing Assyria did was it destroyed the two countries that were attacking Ahaz. It destroyed, remember, it destroyed Damascus and it destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And it dragged those people off into exile, including, by the way, people from Zebulun and Natalie and Galilee. We'll come back to them. They were in the northern kingdom and they were dragged off. But then Assyria, having saved Ahaz from these two northern kingdoms, kept coming and it attacked him. And he was given another prophecy. And this is the prophecy that we've just read. A child will be born, a son in the line of David, and he will be a great king, and he will bring peace, and he will bring hope. And ah, we're hearing it, aren't we? Okay, enough. I did, say to, I did say to the choir, you might like to sing that for us, but they, they, they said they needed another few weeks to practice it. But here's the point. You hear that passage, and immediately Christmas was ringing in your ears, wasn't it? The whole message of the good news of Jesus. But you see, is that really what the passage was about? And at one level, it's not. Because let me tell you another little story. Ahaz had a son. His son was called Hezekiah, and he was born about that time of the, those attackers coming. And he became king after Ahaz was dead. He sat on the throne of David, the son that was given. And he ruled for about 29 years. He did lots of good things. He repaired the temple. He stopped the idolatry. He invited the people who were living in darkness in Ephraim and Galilee and, and these places. He said, you come down to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover with us as we remember all God's promises. He was a good king. He extended the kingdom. He he, he, he won battles and he made it bigger and stronger again. In fact, we know that he also built up the defenses of Jerusalem so it could withstand sieges from the Assyrians or from the Egyptians or wherever else because he trusted in God. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see the tunnels that he built to bring water supplies into the city. And as we read this passage, 
we could very much see that parts of this could be talking about him. He's the king that comes. He brings peace. He, he, he sorts out the enemies. He extends the kingdom. He brings light to the folk that are sitting in darkness up north. And, and he sits on the throne of God himself, of David himself. But on the other hand, on the other hand, this passage can't just be talking about him, can he? Because how on earth could you write, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that God himself was becoming king. Now, I'm betting that there's a few folk going on, oh gosh, the minister's given us a Bible history lesson. This is really not relevant to me today. So let me tell you why this matters. Here's the thing. There was a practical problem in Ahaz's day. An army was outside Jerusalem coming to destroy it, and he needed to work out what to do. He needed the encouragement and the strength that would only come through knowing his immediate future was in God's hands. But if that's all it had been, then it wouldn't be anything for us today. And in fact, if that's all it had been, then it wouldn't be enough, because even if your religion and your faith gets you through the immediate crisis, here's the problem. There's always going to be another one, isn't there? And we, we, we've known that in so many ways. We've come through something, and we thought, God's given me the strength to get through that, but oh gosh, here we go again. There always will be another army at the door. There always will be another war. There always will be another problem. There always will be another situation that breaks our heart and we want to respond to. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, we need, as Christians, the strength to cope, the reassurance to go on, the blessing to get through it. And Isaiah's full of that. It talks to different people at different time periods right through this book. It, it probably addresses different situations in Israel's history over about a hundred-year period where sometimes things were going really well and sometimes things were an absolute disaster. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz. But we also need something more than that. We need to know all the little things that we're struggling with make sense because there is a God who holds the whole of time and space in His hands, who is working out His plan. We need a vision of God's deliverance. And as you read the book of Isaiah, more and more, as God addresses the little things in different folks' lives, He's pointing and painting a picture of that time when God Himself will come, when God Himself will send a Messiah who will suffer, when God Himself will send a Messiah who will seem weak, who will seem like a child, and yet will bring salvation and hope to the whole of the world. You know, Hezekiah would come along a few years later, and I guess folk in Jerusalem would think, this is great, we've got rid of Ahaz, he was no use, and suddenly we've got a good government. But changing governments doesn't always help, does it? Changing the leader doesn't always make a huge difference that people hoped it would make. Because actually, Hezekiah, as good as he was, he had a son called Manasseh, and Manasseh became king after him. And all the Bible says about Manasseh was, Basically, he was no good. Next. But that's always the way it is. It's always another difficulty. 
And we get that in this passage as well, because as it talks about what God's going to do, it says in verse 4, as in the days of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them. Now, not all of us will have caught this, but that's referring to something that had happened, oh, a couple of hundred years earlier, where the people had been attacked not by the Assyrians, but by the Midianites. And God had raised up a guy called Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon? And he told Gideon, I'm going to give you the strength to defeat all these folk. And Gideon had said, well, I'm just a wee wimp from the weakest family in the land. And God had said, no, you're a mighty warrior. I'm going to give you the strength. And out he'd gone and defeated the Midianites. And folk thought, this is great. This is God's deliverance. God's, God set us free. But then if you keep reading the book of Judges, where you'll find it, you'll find that very quickly the people went back to their old ways again. And God sent another king and another ruler. And, and so the pattern went on and on and on. And as you read the Old Testament, you get this sense that people keep saying, oh, well, God's going to do this and sort things out. And he does. But there's always another empire. There's always another disaster. There's always another war. It keeps going round and round and round again. And I don't know about you, but that's my life as well. Sometimes I feel very close to God, and He draws me, and He gives me the strength to get through something. Sometimes I'm fired up because His Spirit in me is, 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 is there, and, and I can see God moving. But then I fail again, and it gets tough again, and it gets hard again. And the strength that got me through the last thing doesn't seem to get me through the next thing. And back I go in my failure and my problems again and again and again. G.R. Tolkien, Tolkien said, always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another form and grows again. The problems just keeping coming. But here's the thing. The gospel doesn't come just to say God's here and He'll help you like a guardian angel through whatever the problem is. It's more than that. It's to say that God Himself is going to come and set the world at right. And therefore, the Christian doesn't just see that God's there in the next problem. We're beginning to lift our eyes and see that God is doing something even greater. And that's the gospel. God coming to the little things but also the big things. If you think in the New Testament, we could have read so many passages, you see this as well. You see God coming and touching just ordinary people's life, a tax gatherer up a tree, a woman that's broken because people want to throw stones at her, a guy who's blind, and Jesus touching each of these little people's lives. And you think, yeah, that's great, but, but what does that mean for the changing of the world? That's just this little thing and that little thing. Even a guy called Lazarus, who he raises from the dead. But do you know what happens to Lazarus at the end of that story? Well, you can guess. Because Lazarus gets old and Lazarus dies. And you think, well, okay, that was great. But all that did is extend his life. But the Gospels point beyond that to all of these things being a sign of something else. This Jesus who's doing this in a case-by-case, case, in an individual basis, is also the one who's going to become the master of the world, who's going to become the one whose all their hopes and all their fears are brought together in as He becomes the Savior who rise, dies and rises again. And so we've got God who's working out this big plan, but we've also got God who's touching the individual things right now and our situations right now. And that's hope. 
as you read this passage, you get that sense of it. As God delivered the people before in the time of Midian, so He's going to do it again. That's what verse 4 says here. But the problem with that again is just as rinse and repeat. We could come today and say, Lord, we want to make a difference in feeding hungry people, and so we're going to collect money for a food bank. But at the end of it, people will still be hungry. We're going to hear Colin later on talking about a warm bank and what we might do to to help people be warm through the difficulty of this winter, but it won't stop the problem of poverty. But there's something more than that, more than what we're doing. Because it's interesting that in, in this passage, it goes on to talk about this, to talk about a day where God will defeat all the enemies. You know, it it, it was fantastic for the Jewish people when they won one of these battles, whether against Midians or Assyrians or or whatever it was. But here's the place where, where God says through Isaiah, I'm looking forward to the day where it's not just that you'll win a battle, but all the battles will stop, where the weapons of war will be no more, where everything will be fulfilled. Have a look at the big picture and see what I'm doing. Let me give you a practical example of this right now. I'm going to say two words which make everybody groan. Presbytery planning. Presbytery planning that we've been looking at and talking about, but here's the thing. We can get really caught up in presbytery planning. Which church are we uniting with? What's the plan? What's the number of ministers? And all the rest of it. And we need to do that. We need to, we need to work out what God is saying in all of that. But let me ask you another question. Can you envisage this? Seventy years from now, and I'm picking 70 years because most of us will not be here. That includes me. I know I'm only 24, but you know. Um, 70 years from now, imagine you could just look in and see what's happening in Motherwell. And I'm wanting you to imagine that there's a Christian community in Motherwell. And it doesn't matter what denomination it is. And it doesn't matter what building it's in or whether it's in any building. But I want you to imagine there's a Christian community in Motherwell full of young folk and old folk, full of different folk, full of people who are gathered around God's Word and praising His name, full of people who are feeding the hungry, full of people who are active in their community, full of people who are making a difference and are noticed, full of people who are teaching and proclaiming God's Word to different folk in Motherwell. And as you look around those folk, you hear somebody giving a testimony of how they came to faith and they are saying, it happened when so-and-so shared the gospel with me, and you think, I knew them. I encouraged them. I prayed for them. And that's the big picture, folks, as we look at presbytery planning. What are we doing now, which gives us a vista of saying we want to build a church and a community in this area that's glorifying God. We don't care what the denomination is. That's details. We don't care which building it is. Maybe it's this building. Maybe it's in St. Mary's. Maybe it's in another building. Maybe they're meeting in a field. Who cares? But is our heart not for that vision of the future? And if we get that vision of the future, then suddenly we begin to live through the details. 
And with that's true of that simple thing, how much more is it true of what we find in the Gospels, which says, don't just come to God to get through the next problem. Yes, he'll be with you through that. But have this bigger picture of what God is doing in Jesus Christ through the whole of time and history. He will come and he will be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. You know, not just an advisor to give you a bit of advice, but that wonderful counselor who gives you the full meaning of what it's all about, who gives you the context that you can begin to see what God is doing in the places that you are right now. This is the big picture of what God is doing, and all the little things point to it. Why did Jesus feed 5,000 people? Well, at one level, he fed them because he wanted us to see the big picture, that he was the bread of life that would satisfy all our needs. But another level, he fed 5,000 people because they were hungry. And, and that's, that's for us as well, to see the big picture that enables us to have hope in the little pictures. And that's why we'll keep feeding people because they're hungry. And it's why we'll keep doing things that change people's lives. Not because it'll solve all the problems, but because it's a pointer. It's because of what we believe about the one who one day will come and end all hunger that we're able to feed people now. It's because we believe that one day the one who will come will dry every tear from every eye that we're being able to bring comfort to people around us right now who are mourning. It's because we believe that one day there will be peace and justice in the world and the whole world will be renewed that we will work for environmental justice and we will speak up for the poor in the situations we are now. It's because we see God's big picture that we are given hope in the little pictures and that is so important today. That's why when we gather as a people together, we gather not just to get through the day, but we get to that place where we are given that big picture of what God is doing. God is coming. God's strength has entered the world in the weakness of Jesus at Christmas. And He has brought Him who will rule and reign over all things. That's our hope, and that's our joy.